0: you're listening to the capex big question podcast where we're joined by other investors thought leaders and entrepreneurs discussing global game-changing trends and burning topics that keep investors up at night one question at a time maybe if we just start mark with you know for for listeners that don't know who you are you'll your you know, incredibly fascinating background and how you got into this business.
1: So, I'll give you the, the quickest version I know, although I, I don't do quick very well. Um, but I actually went to school to be a, an architect, hated it, um, studied biology and chemistry instead, uh, found my way uh, into business school, took a job at an insurance company, the guy who was doing investments retired. So, I got to take over the portfolio and um, start with fixed income, then went to work for an asset manager, equity side, and then kind of got the call to go back to the alma mater at Notre Dame to work in the endowment and did that for five years, was the number two guy, had the chance to come down to North Carolina, be the number one guy. They'd never had a CIO before and, you know, really built a portfolio from, all traditional stocks, bonds, and cash to a portfolio heavy in, in alternatives, private investments, hedge funds, et cetera. And then uh, after seven years of doing that, back in 04, left to form Morgan Creek. Uh, today, we're a registered investment advisor. We work with a handful of wealthy families and institutions. We run a couple of fund-to-funds, both in the private world and in the hedge fund world, and then dabble in, in a couple of other things, specialty investment products. So, you know, kind of a circuitous route. say my life is a series of happy accidents, so I didn't plan to get here, but uh, I do find that that the science training was really good background for investing. Investing is all about forming hypotheses, putting in place an idea, then gathering data, testing the hypothesis, and if you make a mistake, reforming the hypothesis and and starting again very similar to deploying capital in our world
0: yeah it's interesting you mentioned that because you know the majority of people that come into this world go through finance degrees and and that's quite a you know that's a world that concentrates a lot on theoretical economics which for the most yeah. part i think is broken and it doesn't you know the one thing that Years back, I read Soros' books. I mean, I read a ton of books, but one of the books that really highlighted for me, um, I think it was The Alchemy of Finance. And in it, it talks about this concept of looking and being excited about things that you're wrong with. So that you can basically, you know, the end result of that is something that's better than what you'd originally gone in with. And if you think about a science, that's what you do in science, right? You're putting in, inputs expecting a particular outcome, which is your hypothesis. And then you constantly reforming that hypothesis based on the reactions, whether you're putting in you know, um, uh, particular chemicals into a test tube and expecting a, a result and then you don't get the result, then you, you tabulate that and you, you know, retest. But there's this, there's this very empirical um, process to actually finding the truth. And that's not something that in traditional finance is actually dealt with at all. And it was, it was kind of, for me, it was something that um, I found extremely, extremely useful um, in Soros's work as to how he goes about that process. And it's very different to what I was doing. You you know, you obviously have come from that scientific background. I think it's probably almost genetic now um, within you, which. Yeah.
1: I think think, think you summed it up incredibly well, Chris. I, I think the, the idea that um, you learn more from your failures than your success. In fact, one of my good friends, portfolio manager in San Francisco, says, "You know, with every investment, we either get a little wiser or a little richer. Never both."
0: <laughs> well, that's yeah. It's you know, like I was on a conversation just before this with um, with uh, a gen over in San Francisco, Brent Johnson, and he said, "Oh, you know how are things going?" And I said, "Well." You know they're going really well, but I'm worried because that's not how things should be. It's unusual, right? Everything yep. that I've and you know my all of my hypotheses, if you hypotheses, if you will, seem to be playing out, and that's just like I'm frightened because something's something's always wrong, and if I don't know what that wrong is, then it just makes me it, my paranoia levels. Increase So right now, my parano- paranoia levels are pretty high um, because I'm making money. So it's. Well,
1: uh, <laughs> so that's, that's the opposite of the way most people are, right? They, they actually let their guard down when they're doing well and they get all paranoid and spend all their time, you know, um, lamenting their losses instead of learning from them and moving on. So, you know, Source has the other great line in that book, which is just a fabulous book um that's not true it's a terrible book but it's a it wonderful book. you know, he's just he's uh, yeah. not a very good friend, no it's
0: you know? it's it's like chewing leather you know it's very tough <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> but, it but has.
1: it's worth it
0: it's so valuable but
1: yeah, he says, i'm only rich because i admit my mistakes faster than other people
0: yeah you know, it's interesting I do, you know, living out here in New Zealand, we do a lot of hiking and I came across this gentleman just uh, a few months back and he he does sort of Alpine, you know, ascents and he gave me an interesting statistic. He said something around 83% of all fatalities don't exist or don't take place on the most treacherous terrain. They take place just after and because, and what happens is that you're going through this treacherous environment and so your stress levels are high. Your your adrenaline's running. You're you are as alert as you will ever be. And then yes. you then you then you transfer into an area that's not as, um, as stressful and not as precarious. And you let your guard down, and you slip, and you fall. Um, and and that's exact. That's just human nature. In you know whether you're hiking a mountain or whether you're navigating yep. a, you know, currency markets or whatever it is, it's it's the same human. In, you know, emotion that is at play. So, um, you know, that's, yeah. Um, but that hey, well, let's dive into it. So, you know, you and I have got, um, I've got kind of, sort of differing views on some stuff and I'm really keen to actually stress test some of these things. And one of the key drivers behind that is is the dollar, which then flows through into commodity markets, emerging markets, yep. a whole lot of stuff. So do you, could you give me your thesis on on the dollar as it stands now yeah
1: you know i have a have a unique maybe a lone wolf thesis on the dollar these days uh everyone that i talk to everyone that uh, bugs me on twitter about it um seems to think the dollar's going higher i'm in exact opposite camp i i think the dollar has peaked for this cycle i think it's been in secular decline for the better part of Two decades and about to enter the third decade of that decline. We've made three cyclical peaks. Uh, I think we just made the third one um, you know, sometime in the last year, and uh, I think we're we're headed significantly lower. I think part of the problem, you know, relates to uh, the change of, of the the petrodollars. Um, there's just you know going to be less of them at lower oil prices. I think the second is you know, just the, the fall off in global growth and, and global trade. So there's just less demand for dollars. I think it's the rise and the ascendancy of China and them wanting to have uh, the renminbi be A, maybe not the Well, actually, they want it to be the but that'll take a while. Reserve currency, world reserve currency. So there are more countries now doing transactions directly in renminbi than, than skipping, and, skipping a step of converting to the dollar. So I, I think – and then, then you've got the, the killer Ds, as I like to refer to them, demographics, debt, and deflation, all of which augur for, you know, I think a significantly weaker dollar going forward. And now with, with Mr. Trump taking over uh, next year and talking about deficit spending and jacking up the debt, I think all of that's dollar bearish. And Somehow the world thinks it's dollar bullish. I don't really understand.
0: So the okay, so because we've had the debt situation. I mean, look, the the math for that has been etched in stone for a long time, and it hasn't yep. mattered to Sydney. And it, look, this isn't this isn't peculiar to the US. It's a it's a it's a developed world issue, right? Um, is the debt debt overhang and how to actually you know resolve that in some shape or form? So. You know, traditionally, one could say, well, that's pretty much bearish for both the bonds and for the country, for the, for the currency. Um, yep. But then I, I look at things and I say, well, we live in a relative world, right? And if you're right. a large portfolio manager, you've got a few billion to move, and let's just say you're going to move 10% of that um, and you want it net settled now, um, you don't really have any, you know, on, on a cash basis, you don't have any real options other than euro, dollar, yen. And correct and that's that's kind of a kind of keep coming back to that, which is you know sort of coincides with the fact that all of those three major players have actually been able to they've been able to do things that fifteen twenty years ago we would have thought unthinkable because they've all coordinated policy or to a certain extent they've coordinated policy so you know it's like if 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 uh, Joey does something and Freddie does it and um Bill also does it, then, you know, you kind of have to stick with one of them. And you might not like what right. Joey's doing, but it's kind of a little bit, maybe not as bad as what Freddie's doing. And, you know, and that's really kind of the situation that I feel like we've had. I feel like that's breaking down. Part of it's this rising nationalism and patriotism and um, yep. and so forth, which is going to impact yep. that and fragment that market. And then the question that I have is how does that actually flow through? What are the knock-on consequences of that? And, you know, who do you go with? Is it free, free Joe, or Bill, right? So it's a relative issue across those, essentially those developed world countries of the Eurozone, if we will, we can of just put it in that bucket?
1: Yeah, you bring up a really good point in that it's essentially a race to the bottom. And, you know, we know when a country becomes indebted, they really only have a handful of of options You can either grow and pay back the debt. you can default on the debt, you can inflate the debt away or you can devalue your currency and you know those are those are pretty much your options and since growth is pretty hard to find in the developed world today, you know Europe's staggering around zero, Japan maybe one percent and the u s you know, sub 2% today, notwithstanding, everyone excited about the 3.2, forgetting about the the sub 2% prints in first and second quarter. But if you think about this, you know, relativism point, that I think you make that's very correct. um, You know, we know that the yen must devalue in order for them to have a prayer of of solving their their demographic and, and debt issues. So they're going to start the race to the bottom. Um, so I guess that could be dollar bullish if I thought that the yen was going to be bearish. The euro, on the other hand, I think is less clear cut. I'm not in the camp of, you know, the euro is going to break up and the referendum on Sunday is going to usher in this, you know, disintegration of the EU and and the euro. But, uh, you know, I, I, I am willing to acknowledge that... Uh, they, they could want that currency lower because that's you know, Germany is the most mercantilist country on the planet. Everyone talks about China, but it's really Germany. And they sell so many cars and machine tools to everybody else and they need a weak currency. So that's why they created the euro in the first place. I was just going to
0: say cr- that, that yeah, that's why they've been such a, um, yeah, such a champion for the euro because that allowed them that entire – it was their sales platform.
1: Oh, my gosh. I mean, if they had to convert back to Deutsche Marks, and there's you know, the old rumor that all the Deutsche Marks are saved up in the bottom of the Bundesbank and there's a little guy that pets them every night. But if they had to convert back to Deutsche Marks, you know, it'd be 40% higher. Yeah. And suddenly you'd have a collapse in their whole economy and markets. Well, and-
0: it's kind of like at know. the moment, Germany's managed to be eating J- Japan's lunch, really. You yeah. know, that's kind of been the case for the last, you know a decade or maybe a bit more. I, mean, I look at that and I think, what would that have looked like if you didn't have the euro, and it would be even worse, right So you know they're kind of hanging on to the euro they need it, it provides them with that sales platform, and then it also gives them fairly low costs of entry um, in terms yeah. of through capital so yeah but yeah, I'll let you carry on
1: no, no,' it's, it's my my play on words on the, the old Eagles song over here in the States you know, Hotel California, the Hotel Cal-E-U-Fornia. Cal <laughs> so check in anytime, or you can check out anytime you want, but you can never leave. But um, but I, I can also make a case that, that, you know, Super Mario or not so Super Mario, depending on whether you like him or not, um, is running out of bonds to buy. And, you know, he threatened Taper um, on July 8th and the markets have really freaked since then. You know, that's, that's when rates started to rise globally. You know, we went from $13 trillion of negative interest rates, interest rate debt to $8 trillion. And, you know, now everybody's talking about the end of the bond bear, bull market and, you know, rates are going to surge. And I'm going, okay, guys, what, what changed? I mean, other than, than a guy saying that he was going to do less Q, QE next year, What really has changed, and I just don't think much has changed at all. So, um, but yeah, and I also think there's a there's an interesting factoid, which is when the Fed has historically tightened, the dollar strengthens ahead of that tightening, in anticipation of the tightening, and then weakens afterwards. So maybe that's economically related. Economic related, maybe it's something else, but. That has been the way it's worked historically, and you know I, I love Sir John Templeton, another one of my heroes, whose you know four most dangerous words it's different this time it's never different this time. I just don't see how it's going to be different
0: so on that relative basis, you would be essentially more bullish on the euro than, and because we've discussed yen right so the, the yen yeah. yeah, yeah you are yep. pretty much bearish on you'd be basically bullish euro um and then the bullish
1: emerging markets that's that's where I, and this is where I, I think i probably come way out of bounds for most people is i think the whole world at least all the people i hang out with think that you know as soon as the fed raises all emerging markets crumble the dollar strengthens and every emerging market currency gets whacked and i I just see it differently. I, I think the growth is in the emerging markets. The demand for their currencies is going to rise. The um, you know they have much better debt to GDP levels. They have That's much true. better demographics, and so I I think there's a relative movement. Again, keeping to your relativity point, which I think is really important. That you know we move toward a system where. You know, there is more Rem and B. To your point, if, if you gotta move a couple billion dollars, right now you got three choices. Yeah. But may you know, maybe you buy a little bit of, you know, Brazilian Riye now. Maybe you buy a little bit of Rem and B now. Maybe you buy a little of course no one ever buys the the uh um Ruble, but um I don't know. they I, I it, it's it's probably still too early, um, which is part of you know, one of my challenges is reining in my earliness, because um, the euphemism for wrong is early.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> too true.
1: So, if you think about
0: on a on a kind of um, portfolio structuring basis, you might have, let's say, you're a large you know money manager, and you just you're just managing um, money market funds or something like that. Yep. Yep. And you've got, I don't know, fifteen percent EM. Um, currencies in it and the balance is just developed you know, a bit of sterling and yen and yep. euro and own yep. uh, do you have any sense of um that changing at the margin so going from say 15 to 20 or 25 into you know some of these currencies like uh, the the uh, heck the south african rand. i mean that's down that's been yep. um i still think absolutely
1: hammered. and you but, know I, I'm, I'm i struggle with this because again you're you know, you're challenging me on my my big picture with with facts which is the best way to challenge a big picture view you know break down that hypothesis back to the scientific method and i wish i could say with some conviction you know where we were headed is it 20 is it 25 is it 30 but it's it's difficult but i do think you know back to soros soros's first law as i call it um which is, you know, the worse the situation gets, the less it takes to turn it around and the greater the upside. So, you know, you look at the South African RAND and you say, holy heck, you know, is South Africa going to cease to exist? Is it a failed state? I'm not there. And if that's not going to happen, what does it take to just turn that on the margin? And we saw that a little bit with the RIAI this year in Brazil. You know, it hit four twenty ish and people were saying, Oh my god, it's gonna to go to eight now and you know, now we're three thirty.
0: Yeah, I mean that's kinda of where you where you look for that sort of exhaustion point and you make a good point. I mean that's really where you get this huge asymmetry built up because you can easily make the case that things are bad, right? I mean, so there I grew up in South Africa, right? And and I left there for a reason. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. Um, was and it was a good move but i'm also cognizant of the fact that you can have it's it's not just about direction it's about the pricing of that direction you know so um yes. and i you know i get this a bunch because i wrote, wrote about this and you know the dollar index back in 14 when it broke um the rem numbe and in you know, a number of these things like the rem numbe we you know, I was looking at the interbank market and that was showing a lot of signs of stress. And then really my my head trader came to me and said, look at this. And it was like literally sh- going short the renminbi, the, the vol was, I think it was about 2.5%. So you look mm-hmm. at that and you think, you, you think to yourself, okay, yeah, I get it, it's a peg currency, but we've got all these issues coming up in the interbank market that are showing a lot of stress. So you know what, if we're wrong, we just roll. I mean, two and a half points. Like just, it can move that much in a day. So, so and mm-hmm. then and then within six months it was at I think it was eight and a half percent. Yeah. Right. So, so it you know it's 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 not so much necessarily even getting it right. It's just what is the pricing of that? What's the market pricing that at? And I so said like I haven't gone and had had a look of recent at um, you know vol um, South African rand or anything. But I suspect we're kind of getting to those levels where it's, you know, even if you're wrong, if you take a portfolio and you just put like one percent of it into yes. it, those kind of situations, you're looking at a ten to twenty one twenty to one return. If things don't even necessarily get better, they just get less worse.
1: Less bad. Yep. Yeah, you know, um, my um one of my favorite guys in emerging markets, Arjun Devecha and GMO, um, headquartered in Berkeley, you know, GMO's in Boston, and he has a great line about emerging markets and, and we can apply it here to currencies is you know you make the most money in emerging markets when things go from you know truly awful to merely bad yeah <laughs> that yeah it, they don't have to get good mm. they don't even have to get marginal they just no. have to go from awful horrible to bad yeah and you can make a lot of money and you know there's a another quote I love I stole from Howard Marks, which is you know, there really is no investment bad enough that you can't fix with the right price. I mean, there are a few, but, but there are very few that you can't fix with the right price.
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess you, you're talking about bankruptcy, right? Um, which actually yeah. leads me into something, because, you know, you've talked about a, sort of emerging markets, which, correct me if I'm wrong, you, you've got to be bullish commodities in that. Yes sort of environment and and again that kind of plays into it as well because we've had we through what about five years of bear market and commodities um so we can talk through that but then the other the other thing that i've been looking at of of recent is you know the overall bond market and then especially the high yield bond market which i look at that now and i mean oh my god that's that's priced for rainbows unicorns and you know uh, flowers, yeah. and daisy, roses, all piled on top, and and I kind of look at the, it's the it's the opposite of that, you know, going from terrible to less worse. It's kind of just this this extremely lovely situation, which if it just doesn't achieve, you know, as well as one expects, then the downside seems to me to be fairly enormous, and that's true also of you know low vol ETFs yeah. and whatnot, like, which I wanted to come into, but. Oh.
1: Now you're going to get me started, I mean, Chris. It, this is, my, this is my, my windmill to tilt at. You know, I, I, I think this is the most moronic thing I think I've ever seen in my career. I mean, to, to have a criteria where you pick securities based on the volatility of their price. It, it's, it's the epitome of reflexivity. The more you buy it, the lower the vol, which means the more you want to buy it, which means the lower the vol, and it becomes a self-fulfilling, virtuous cycle. But when it turns and goes the other way, it becomes a vicious cycle that will take very many unsuspecting women and children and orphans and take their hard-earned money and destroy it. And and the one I'd love to pick on is ExxonMobil right this company is an industrial conglomerate you know it's not just an oil company it's an industrial conglomerate for 40 years 40 years it never traded with a pe above 15 or below 12 cuz it's a cyclical business and because of these low vol etfs it now trades at 38 times
0: people just using one metric i mean i don't i don't quite frankly I don't see a problem with trying to understand volatility Right? And, and, and using that sure. as part of your pricing, but to do it in isolation of everything else is just insane. It's
1: insane. It's, um, look, I, mean, I have a problem with ETFs generally. You know, People like to call them smart beta, which <laughs> to me is the biggest moron next to jumbo shrimp. Um, <laughs> you know, beta can't be smart. It, it's, it's, it's impossible. Beta is dumb. Beta is rule-based. Alpha is smart. And it's good marketing. And it's got a whole bunch of people thinking factor-based investing is something new, even though it's not. Um, but what's crazy about it is how can it be intelligent to create a rule that buys things irregardless of their valuation? So I say I want to buy an ETF, I want to create an ETF that buy that buys home builders. I'm gonna buy home builder stocks. And I'm going to buy, and a new home builder comes out, and because everybody thinks homes are doing great, let's say they looked at the Aussie market lately or the Vancouver market lately, and they didn't know that it was just Chinese money you know, pumping up prices, and they said, oh, I want to buy a home builder. And I'm willing to pay 40 times for this new IPO of a home builder. Even though home builders never trade it more than 12 to 14 times because they're cyclical businesses. Well, the ETF must buy that home builder yeah it's it's, mandated. it's
0: yeah yeah totally so you know this actually coincides in with there's an article I wrote about a little while back you know the death of hedge funds the death of active yeah. management and we started this conversation talking about this kind of globally uh, central bank policy which has been you know coordinated for you know, pretty much since the GFC and during that period of time you've had this Relative consistency, and it has made sense to go and, and just basically portfolio allocate across a bunch of ETFs and be done with it. But you're taking an isolated period of history and, and just discarding you know, hundreds of years of history um, and then saying, well, this is it. To me, that's yeah. just, it, it's a setup for a fairly catastrophic outcome. No, no,
1: this is going to be catastrophic. And you're you're not being hyperbolic when you say catastrophic. It it is, and it's no different than what happened in the late '90s. It's no different than what happened in the late '20s. You know, when Herbert Hoover, who was the last president we elected in the United States with no political experience, <laughs> interesting, nine months before '29. Not saying that that's going to happen, but it's interesting how history rhymes. But the problem, as you describe, is is this is going to end badly. I mean, look, the death of hedge funds, this is the sixth time in my career, and I'm not that old, but this is the sixth time in my career that hedge funds have died. Right? It's been over. They'd never have any more money. They died at 150 billion in assets and then 300 billion in assets, then 600 billion in assets, then 1.2 trillion in assets, and then 2.3 trillion in assets, and now 3.1 trillion. So they've died six times. And you know, like Mark Twain, the reports of my demise have been greatly exaggerated. Active management, it's the fourth time it's died in my career. You know most notably in 2000, first quarter of 2000, active management was dead. We set a record, all-time record for money into passive mutual funds. Vanguard brought in $260 billion in a single quarter. When was that surpassed? Last quarter. So it's not unusual. And it's a what but what is amazing to your point of ignoring hundreds plural of years of history, for the you know, to the exclusion of the previous five years, one thing we know about financial history is the next five years are never like the last five. They're always like the last 25, or 35, or 45, or 15, or 17, whatever. It's not like the last five. And it's because things are cyclical, you know, politics are cyclical, and businesses are cyclical, and people say, oh well, you know, the, the Fed and the central banks have eliminated the business cycle. Really? So there's no more bankruptcies bankruptcies hit a new all-time high um, this year defaults no more defaults well defaults hit a new record high Um, you know high yield issuance we had a record issuance four years ago we know that four years later you know half of triple c rated bonds default they will default this time too um, because the banks actually like to get paid back so yes this has gone a little longer maybe than expected and yes There have been plenty of smart managers, you know, I'd like to include ourselves in that, that have had a really tough year this year because the short side has been really brutal. Um, But look, when one thing I know, and I know this for certain, and I'm not, you know, I'm not sure of a lot, although my wife tells me I I act like I am all the time, (laughs) but um, I am sure of this, that when you quintile out companies, and you put the highest ROIC, highest ROE, most profitable companies in one quintile, and the least profitable, lowest ROIC companies in another quintile, 95% of the time, the best companies will go up more than the worst companies. Unfortunately, 5% of the time, the opposite happens. And we're in one of those 5%. Yeah, The last one was 2000 we know what happened the next two years. I'm not saying it has to play out exactly the same way, although I tweet about it a lot, hashtag 2000.2.0. But I, I just think people who think that monetary policy is some magic elixir just haven't studied history. You know, we had zero interest rates in the 30s. We had QE in the 30s. And it didn't work then. We ended up in the Great Depression and it took a world war to pull us out. So not saying we have to get to those extremes, but this is not new. And if creating wealth was as simple as printing money, then everybody would do it, wouldn't they?
0: It's like we said earlier before, it's not different this time. And that's really what it comes down to, I think. Mm-hmm. Except what we've had this time is we've just had, a, I guess we could call it extenuating circumstances that have allowed yeah. for things to perpetuate longer than one would have anticipated. Thanks very much for tuning in. To receive more great subscriber-only information, go to capitalistexploits.at.